When it comes to entrepreneurial success and philanthropic generosity, few names come to mind as readily as Peter Monk. Today, the Canadian Club of Toronto has the distinct pleasure of bestowing upon the founder and chairman of the world's largest gold mining company its inaugural Lifetime Achievement Award. In doing so, we celebrate the story of a Hungarian immigrant to Canada who, within eight years of escaping the 1944 Nazi invasion of his homeland as a teenager, had earned one of the most prestigious bachelor's degrees in Canada, within six years of that had founded his first company, and within five years of that had addressed the Canadian Club of Toronto for the first time. For those of you keeping up with the math, that appearance at the Canadian Club was in 1963, and Mr. Monk was a mere 36 years old. In fact, Mr. Monk tells me that the memory of how it felt to be invited to speak so early in his career is one of the reasons he felt compelled to accept the award. He grew even fonder of the Canadian Club of Toronto in 2004 when his daughter and award-winning business writer Nina Monk was invited to speak, and he was permitted to introduce her. Mr. Monk's record of service has been recognized the world over, and we certainly hope he has room on his mantle for yet one more piece of hardware. He has received six honorary doctorate degrees. He received our country's highest civilian honor in 1993, becoming an officer of the Order of Canada. Two years ago, he was promoted to companion of the Order of Canada. In 2002, Mr. Monk became the first Canadian to receive the prestigious Woodrow Wilson Award for Corporate Citizenship. He has also been inducted into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame and the Canadian Business Hall of Fame. Armed with an electrical engineering degree from the University of Toronto, Mr. Monk began his entrepreneurial pursuits almost immediately. He founded Claritone, a high-end stereo and television manufacturer in the late 1950s. Later, he became chairman and chief executive officer of the Southern Pacific Hotel Corporation, which was the largest hotel and resort chain in Australasia in the 1970s. Since founding Barrick Gold Corporation in 1983, Mr. Monk has been the driving force behind one of the world's most iconic gold mining companies. His list of charitable causes is as long as his list of honours. Some of the beneficiaries of his generosity include Canada's leading universities and hospitals, the Monk Centre for Cardiac Care at the Toronto General Hospital, the Monk Centre for Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, the Peter Monk Charitable Foundation, the Monk Lectures have all become household names, emblematic of the tremendous generosity of the man we honour here today. This afternoon, Mr. Monk will reflect on his entrepreneurial and philanthropic path and will explain why Canada should be a model to the world. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming our first ever Lifetime Achievement Award recipient, Peter Monk, uh, Mr. Peter Monk to the Canadian Club of Toronto podium.
So I guess all that proves is that you hang in long enough, you get everything. Uh, just hang in there. Um, time takes care of more things, and it gives you plenty of opportunity to achieve many of your objectives. Uh, Nick, the introduction is more than generous. Coming from somebody like you increases, indeed, doubles the pleasure. But you know, what turned me into a Canadian and what turned me into a philanthropist, if that's what you call me, really is my love for this country, and that love has come from a degree from the Canadian Club. Just put yourself in the shoes of a refugee escaping war-torn Europe. And when I talk about war-torn Europe, and I don't want to go into details if you haven't got the time, you talk about in the 45, 46 area where the barbarism, the murderism, the hunger, the lack of a single city, intact, people living in ruins like rats, no men around because almost 40 million have been murdered, where women had to go out and go to bed with soldiers to get food for their children, where cynicism, suspicion, and assumption of guilt became second nature to every European. I arrived in this place not speaking the language, not knowing a dog, with Please understand, with a difference in terms of Canada from Europe being not like it is today, not like it is today between Canada and China, but being a hundred times greater. There was no communication. There was no television. There was no YouTube. There were no travelers. There was nothing. This was terra incognita in every single respect. And coming from a background of a war-torn Europe, where being different was a priori being guilty, being different in terms of religion, habits, customs, language, behavior, culture, meant that you were guilty. At best, you were kicked around. At worst, the gas chambers. And someone comes here from that background and goes the first day down to a high school called Lawrence Park, trembling, fearing, 18 and a half years old, to a group of people who in 1947 have not seen a foreigner except maybe in the odd movies because from 1938, 39, when a war broke out, a generation of people had been cut off from information. There was no communication. So there appears this creature from an alien world. The creature who has accepted the fact that from where he comes from, the very fact that he's different, 
let alone alien, makes him guilty, makes him ready to be the victim, makes it absolutely legitimate to kick him around at best. Instead, Mr. McKellar, my principal, takes me in to this gorgeous classroom, the sun was shining, I've never forgotten it, girls and boys sitting together, because they couldn't take their eyes on me. I was dressed in a, in a flannel suit and a tie. Uh, they never seen anybody at that age with a flannel suit and a tie. And I kept on looking, and the girls were gorgeous. And i never been to a school that was co-op, ever. I didn't even know that co-op schools existed. In Europe, they kept a boys' school and a guys' school with good reasons, miles apart. <laughs> you saw what happened to Strauss Kahn. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so there was good reason for that. And there, at the end of the three or four hour session between nine o'clock and noon, up gets a class, and they all stream out somewhere. I follow. And they all go in, classrooms, doors open around the corridors. We all move in, and we move into the gym. I said, God, that's a funny time to exercise. Well, the gym had a long trestle table full of milk, donuts, hot dogs, and hamburgers. I tell you, the amount of food in that high school would have been enough to have an average German city go into a riot. It could have fed any city in Europe for a whole day. Piles and piles of unbelievable delicious food, milk, that was rationed for the past decade was in pitchers, butter piled up, every kind of bread. And then, to tap off this semi-real scene of the move into paradise, jazz music was turned on, which of course was strictly forbidden as an alien, foreign, American, Jewish, degenerate, you name it, uh, kind of entertainment. Couples get up, go in the middle, and dance cheek to cheek. That would be a criminal offense in Europe. Murder was okay. Discrimination was fine. But to take a girl in a school and actually dance with them cheek to cheek, that is a Canada I arrived. By the time the afternoon lessons came, I had three invitations to go to dinner to people. By the time the weekend came, I was invited to a cottage. I didn't know what the hell a cottage meant. But how could, I, how could I go wrong as long as the people invited me smiled? And then you got up to that cottage, and the fridge was open. I said, fridge? I mean, I, I, in my own house, I wasn't allowed to go to the fridge. I never had a friend who I was allowed in their house to go into the kitchen in Europe, to go into someone's kitchen. Here, everybody went to the fridge when everybody were hungry, helped themselves and ate. The boat was yours. The cottage was yours. The inclusiveness, the goodwill, radiated from everybody's eyes, behavior pattern, gestures, and movements. And that tone, that enormous inclusiveness, that enormous effort to make you feel at home comfortable because you're an alien, because you clearly were different, because you obviously could not feel secure. To go to that extra mile was so typical, was so characteristic, was all about 
what Canada was all about. That generation of self-help of the persons who came here and moved up north and Saskatchewan and northern Ontario, who, of course, had to help each other. Of course, they had to include a, a stranger. The stranger could have saved their lives. Of course, they were, they were supportive. And this unique, inclusive, unbelievably welcoming attitude, to me, was symbolized by your club. To me, the Canadian club was sort of the unattainable bastion of the really wasp business establishment. Certainly wasn't exactly a welcoming home for immigrant boys. And to be able to be here in less than 10 years and to be asked to speak, and if I could show you, which of course, uh, Nick, you saw, the invitation there wouldn't be a name that would not be Scottish or Irish. The head table had to have a minister on it to say grace. Singing the Queen's anthem was an absolute must. And despite of that, that, that narrow, waspy, Anglo-Saxon uh, establishment cohesion, the attitude towards a stranger, the attitude towards somebody from the outside, was as indicative, was as typical, and was as welcoming as I've experienced six years earlier when I got my first day at Lawrence Park High School, which, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, kept on being repeated in my life as I moved from high school to my summer job, and I had a tough summer job. Picking tobaccos in Guelph was no holiday. Um, uh, uh, let me tell you, from summer job to summer job, from first year of college to second year college, in between the summer jobs, I was in northern Quebec laying out electrical lines. In those days, you couldn't get your engineering degree unless you had 1,800 hours of practical experience. And you didn't exactly get the deluxe locations. Uh, but that was the very essence. That didn't matter whether you were working down the hydro workshop, whether you were up in Latouk, or whether you were up in Brent uh, in a kibbutz, and you spent a week there with the locals. The Canadian attitude, that Canadian inclusiveness, and I'm sorry I keep on repeating inclusiveness because it is in today, the 21st century, so vital. It is so important that this particular trait in today's world, where again there's polarization, where there's against differences, where there's issues and fights and, and, and all kinds of trouble spots, and let's don't go into that. That inclusiveness is a characteristic <coughs> of such overwhelming value, of such overwhelming importance, and distinguishes Canadians from anybody else. We don't need affirmative action. We don't need laws and regulations. It's in the Nature, it's the DNA of Canadians to be inclusive, to be helpful, to say, you're a stranger, we will go the extra way, the extra mile to give you the help that we know you need. But they do that without making you feel inferior. The fact that we could succeed in Clareton, how on earth would have happened a, I was a lousy student. B, I wasn't even diligent. I mean, I had none of the attributes. Yet we succeeded because the atmosphere, the ambience, the stock exchange, 
They, they never had a listing. When we got listed in 1960 April, the first industrial listing after the Second World War of a non-mining company, Clareton was it. This Toronto Stock Exchange, down the street, you should have seen how welcoming they were. You should have seen how, instead of being rejecting, because who is this alien? Who is this Jew? Who is this foreigner? Who is this man who has no background, no father, no mother, nobody? No. It was a country. Wherever we went, we got that extra helping hand. I think I made my point. And you, the Canadian club, different as you were then, the grace had to be said on the right. On the left, there was always an Anglican bishop or a minister. Uh, God save the Queen had to be sang. The, the, the president would not be a visible minority, and the guest would not be a Jew. Uh, so in every, in every respect, this thing would have been different, let me tell you. But, but, but having said that, the attitude has remained the same. And I think that is what makes Canada fundamentally different. Yes, you can say Canada stands tall today. There's no area of physical or human attributes which I cannot go through with you and say, we stand tall. We stand tall of ECD, we stand tall amongst the G20. You name it, debt to GDP, balanced budget, stable government, great currency, job employment, uh, influx of foreign investment. In every area, in every area you look, we are on the top and we're getting better. If you look at the non-financial parameters, if you look at those criteria that are not classified in the OECD reports, the G20 reports, we are even better. Is anybody got a better health care? Full of troubles as it is. And boy, we can all bitch and complain, especially when they keep us waiting. But on the end, have we, anybody has had it better? Has anybody got a less corrupt judicial system than we do? Has anybody got the kind of educational background, the kind of legal background, the kind of government background that is functioning so flawlessly here and gets better every day? Which country? Which country? And please don't, be, don't listen to just the global mail when they bitch and complain, because that's how they sell newspapers. Uh, and and they've got to keep on selling the damn things. But, but just look at it objectively. Compare ourselves to any other country. There is all the talk about the growth of brick. But take brick apart. And, you know, I'm not putting any country down. But brick, great country, Brazil. Phenomenal growth. Double the growth rate than us. Well, please look at it. Where did they start from? Look at the flabellas. Look at the income gap. And I don't want to go on. Take the next one in the brick. Look at Russia. Ask Khodorovsky about the legal system. Ask a few people about the corruption. That way you think we ought to be? India, great country, wonderful people, brilliant, smart, educated, huge population base. 285 people today are untouchable. The caste system is still in place. 
And while they practice democracy, as long as they can exclude a quarter billion of them because they're untouchable, is that comparable to Canada? And then we go on to see in the brick, China. I don't want to go there. You make up, you make up your own mind. Uh, democracy, democracy is spelled big. Uh, so I think that in every respect, Canada today stands tall. The question is, what do we do about it? How do we go about it? How do we create and build on what we have already got, which is excellent? And there is an opportunity here that may never, ever be offered in our generation to another nation. Canada's traditional industrial backbone has been always a mining industry. We have started mining at the, before we started to, to, to grow grain. We have had the Rio Algums and the Norandas and the Alcans, and on and on we go to the world's major mining companies. And while it is true that the Incos and Falcon Bits and Norandas and Alcans have changed ownership, it's not ownership. What matters is a human knowledge. It's a creativity. It's a comprehension. It's the understanding of what makes an Alcan Alcan and Noranda Noranda. And that had stayed in here. That's why today the mining industry is riding higher and higher and higher. That's why today the mining industry that is going to be the driver of wealth over the next generation, which it will be as soon as God made children. And if you doubt me, let me for a minute transgress. If you believe that the process of moving 40 million or 50 million Chinese and Indians from their ancestral villages where they live in conditions like their great-great-grandfathers have lived at $3 a week, with no infrastructure, with no sewers, with no water, with maybe at best a bicycle per village, if you think that that movement of 30, 40 million people into the main cities, into proper employment, will stop, you've got something else coming. Because God forbid if they do stop, those governments know that the fundamental political stability is endangered. It'll carry on. And how do you move 30, 40 million people from that kind of rural background 800, 1,000 miles away with nothing into factories? Factories require buildings. Buildings require steel. Factories require machinery. Machinery requires iron or tin, lead. And they require roads. And they require bridges. And they require railroads. Just imagine the intake of raw materials of 40, 50 million people being brought up year in and year out like it has been over the past 10 years. And the five past 10 years, okay, commodities doubled or trebled. That's just the beginning, because this coincided at the time when the European and the wealthy developed economies were contracting. So we had enough raw materials still in the pipeline in our minds to supply this enormous demand. Despite of that, the prices of most commodities have doubled and trebled. We are going to run out. We are running out now, and the relentless demand for raw materials will continue. And let me tell you, 
let me tell you, there's a wonderful thing about this, because the new mines, and there'll be many, 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 hundreds in the next 20 or 30 years that we build, will be built in countries like Zambia and Patagonia or Siberia or in Kenya. All countries that should benefit from the enormous investment that mines require. They should benefit from all the wonderful things like opportunity, education, health, that only mining can bring them. And if there is one country that is able to provide and rechannel the billions and billions and trillions of savings, non-productive savings in the pension funds and in the various saving accounts of Western Europeans who stopped making capital, but they've got to preserve the capital they made for two generations, and they want to recycle that into the new mines and to finance it, there is only one country that has got the credibility, the human infrastructure, the ability, the practice, the legal profession, the brokers, the financial institutions that stand behind the brokers that can provide global credibility to that action. Bahrain ain't going to do it, and nor, nor is Singapore going to do it. And believe me, ask you to have a question why the world's foremost stock exchange, London, is on its knees to merge with TSE. It's not our climate. <laughs> they see what we see. And if you ask yourself why the most important Chinese, and remember, the Chinese are going to provide more than half of all the capital needed for this enormously capital-hungry industry, the new mining industry, why the Chinese, the xenophobic, brilliant Chinese, opened up their first investment office outside of China in Toronto, I think you will come to the same conclusion. The answer lies in Canada's role, in Canada's unparalleled opportunity, and the wealth and the well-being and the prosperity and the reputation it will create, just like London has for 100 years, but at the top of the empire, they were the source and the foundation where all the capital of the world was allocated from, from, from railroads to USA to mines in Brazil. And you know, if you ultimately draw a line and say, how is that possible? Why did it happen to us? The answer is very simple. Let me take you back to the way Peter Monk was received, because that's what happened to millions of other people. Because this is a country who does not ask your origins. It only concerns about your destiny. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Monk. I'd now like to welcome Susan MacArthur, Chair of the Canadian Club of Toronto's Award Committee, to the podium.
Mr. Monk uh, and guests, this award is something that we take very seriously at the Canadian Club of Toronto. The committee subjected a list of well-qualified nominees to a very rigorous selection process, and I can say you were up against a tough field. By the end of the process, we chose a Canadian who has, through his leadership and inspiring achievements, clearly made a positive and lasting impression on Canada. It gives us great pleasure to launch the Canadian Club of Toronto's Lifetime Achievement Award by honouring Peter Monk, founder and chairman of Barrett Gold Corporation. I'd like to ask Nick Chambers, Mr. Monk, and Jamie Watt to come up and present the award. The honour is greater. Thank you so very much. Mr. Monk, this afternoon you have once again demonstrated why you are one of Canada's most inspiring and important leaders. And I'm so glad, Mr. Monk, that you were in Canada's destiny. You and your team have built a global powerhouse in Barrick and have you, you have used the same energy, guts and commitment with your philanthropic endeavours. In fact, I have a dear friend who has recently benefited from the incredible facilities at the Monk Cardiac Center, and he wanted to make sure I thanked you personally for your generosity. Decades ago, few would have imagined that Canada's largest gold producer would be found in Canada. Your adept leadership of Barrick, with its 25,000 employees, many of whom are here in the room today, um, speaks to your core values of innovation, hard work, assembling incredible talent, and social responsibility. Mr. Monk, our inaugural Lifetime Achievement Award is a celebration of your visionary leadership, your generosity of spirit, spirit time, and resources. Thank you very much. Thank you, Susan. Thank you again, Mr. Monk, and thanks once again to Norton Rose, ORLLP, for your support. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes our television programming, which has been broadcast live on Rogers TV. We're grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian Club events. And I now declare that this meeting is adjourned. Thank you.